Hello, everybody. Welcome, Welcome to 11th hour. Um, please take your seats if you're just coming in. Sorry, we're starting a couple minutes late today. Um, and a reminder, as please turn off or silence your cell phone. That We have the mics working. If there's questions at the end, I'll bring this microphone around so that everyone can hear. Agents and editors are always talking about literary fiction and commercial fiction and upmarket fiction and genre fiction. One agent told me that she was looking for latte lit, which I suppose means books that one should only read in a coffee shop. Today, Sandra Schofield will discuss the limitations of this perspective and how we can think about the novel continuum. Sandra is the author of seven novels, including Beyond Deserving, a National Book Award finalist. Her most recent book, Swim, Stories of the 60s, was published in May of this year. She has written a memoir, a craft book for writers, the scene book, and a book of essays about family, mysteries of love and grief, reflections on a plainswoman's life. Her craft book, The Last Draft, Revision Strategies for the Novelist, is forthcoming in September. She has extensively reviewed novels for major newspapers and has edited and coached many novelists. She is on the faculty of the Pine Manor College Solstice Low Residency MFA program and has been a member of the Iowa Summer Writing Festival faculty for many years. Please join me in welcoming Sandra Schofield. Thank you. When you hear a long list like that, some people would say, oh, she's prolific, and other people would say, gosh, she's getting old. <laughs> she's had time to do all that. Because uh, when I think about writing now, I just think of myself in the Barco lounger in my pajamas. That's, about the, that's the way I work, with the computer on my lap. But they tell me that it's better for you, you know, to stand up. Do you know that? So I, I'm, I, my new resolution is to try to work at my, I have a, like a kitchen island, and I, it looks like it would work. And I have one more book one more novel that I'm well into, and it would be a shame not to finish, and, and then I'm officially done. Um, which is part of why I wrote this book, um, The Last Draft. I, I've taught a lot of novelists, and I love, love, love getting involved in other people's stories, and I've read so many books. Um, but when I moved from... Um, Southern Oregon to Missoula, Montana, one of the things, it's been about 12 years ago, and one of the th things I decided to do was to begin to sort of cull my library. Um, I thought, you know, every single one of these books I don't need, and somebody might find them useful. And it took me years. I, I mean, I did, it wasn't like I did it overnight. It was years and years. And I did things like I packed up boxes of um, literary novels, novels that were hot because they got prizes, etc., and sent them off to um, I sent him off to the man who does the what is the annual um, everybody likes to be on the list of, of small press. What is it? Yeah, yeah. So, and I sent them to him because he at that time was running a little bookshop in the summer. And I gave lots of books to, you know, to friends. And I gave books to um, people where seniors lived. And on and on and on and on. 
and I did, I did get them down. Of course, I've rebought probably 40 of them. <laughs> but um, in the end, it was really interesting to me. It, I, before I came, I went down and looked at my library again. And I have, you know, I have a library of, of things that um, I use in my teaching, both craft books and, and novels and short stories. But, the, but most of my library that I just couldn't part with are, are books that were published by small presses um, or that really were never big. Um, a lot of them are, are old, you know, it, and I was, I was thrilled. And of course, then I had to start buying books again. And I've bought just about the whole New York Review of Books um, library because those are books that are otherwise would be hard to find. So it, I just keep thinking about, well, what makes a, a book mean so much to me that I can't let go of it? What makes a book mean so much to me that I want other people to read it? And on the other hand, what books speak to me as a writer or a teacher? And so those are some of the ideas that I've tried to, to put down um, to share with you. Um, my students and workshop participants I have found over the years refer to novels in quite a binary way. They think of novels as being either popular and commercial or literary and artful. Um, it's a false comparison, and I think it sets us all up to be defensive. Um, the first time I meet with a group of, of new students in the MFA program where I teach, one of the things that, that uh, I always hear among the, the ones who want to write novels is, what kind of novel do you write? What kind of novel do you want to write? And um, our program has a lot of guys come to write crime novels. And that's because Dennis Lehane's name is attached to it. He, he started the program and comes in the summer. Um, so they, they're writing, and they're very kind of like, I'm writing about guys and guns and whatever. And we get a lot of, of writers who are writing fantasy. And, and they're sort of a type. They, they love what they're doing, and they immediately become friends with each other. And they seem to feel no need whatsoever to explain it to anyone who doesn't understand, which I, which I find really delightful. But I have never had a student say, I want to write a literary novel. Never. And I don't know that I would say that either, because it sounds snotty. It's like, would you really want to write a literary novel? Well, yeah. Because wouldn't you love to get a literary prize? Wouldn't you like to get a literary grant? Um, but what do we mean by all those things? Um, I, think, I think that having descriptors for kinds of novels um, often underestimates readers, and, and readers will surprise us. I, I hear my students say, I want to write a book that people will read. Replace that with, will buy. Um, and then I hear someone else say, well, I'm not going to sell out quality. Well, no. I mean, why would you be coming to an MFA program? Um, and I do hear students say, I like my genre. And I thought, maybe we could wear caps. Uh, 
But uh, it, it's as if it's as if maybe there's something wrong if you're coming to learn about literature and writing to be interested in fantasy and crime or God help us romance. In our MF, MFA program, we have a preponderance of these writers. But no one, no one of them ever says, me, I'm going to write schlock. They know, and for sure, none of them say, I don't care if I have 40 writers. Everybody wants to be read. Because what we all want is to write with intelligence, imagination, compassion. We want to be read. We want to be good. We don't expect to be read by everyone, but we have a sense of a readership that would, we would like to have. And I always ask my students to imagine their readers, to think of uh, who is on the other side of the book, that there is going to be a reader. Back in the dark ages, when I was in school, high school, teachers graded on something called the curve. Anyone know about the curve? Not, not, oh, okay. The idea was that at one end of an imaginary line, there were idiots who didn't study and didn't deserve to pass, and they got their Fs. At the other end, there were prissy nerds and natural geniuses, and they got their As. And the rest of the class was sort of somewhere in the middle. And the most common grade, of course, was in the middle, the C. I think this approach has fallen off in teacher training. I hope so. But it is useful for our purpose to think of the idea of a continuum. I want to forget A and F, because that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not making judgments like that. We aren't going from good to bad on our continuum. We're just saying that there is that the idea of the continuum is that there are fewer of whatever it is at the ends and more humped up in the middle. That was the idea of um, the bell curve. And um, that's where books are sold. Those, those are the books you see everywhere. Um, they, those books, I believe, have qualities from both ends. They are the most likely to be read categories. And in the end, I think they're the most likely to be respected categories. The agent Donald Moss talks about the breakout novel as the one that has such a powerful story that it appeals to a mass readership and yet is at the same time so well written that it is admired for its artistry. And I would say that's not a bad goal for a novel writer. It may mean that a genre writer with a good audience writes something that a broader audience appreciates. Um, this happens, seems to happen every season. There's almost always someone with a backlist of good, solid books who, for whatever reason, hits a sweet spot and suddenly has a big audience. It's another one of those dreams that keeps drawing us forward. Hilary Mantel, for example, the British writer, has been turning out terrific novels for decades. But it was her books about Thomas Cromwell that brought her great fame. And of course, there are writers with audiences of readers who don't care about any of the issues I'm raising. They just want a good story. They don't read reviews. They, I don't know. They don't read, they don't read reviews. They go to the bookstore. They like the cover. Their friend read it. It was chosen by the book club. If I could tell you how they choose those books, 
I'd be a bestseller, and I could help you be a bestseller, but it's some kind of magic. I had, a, I had an editor once who called it Mojo, and she said, this is, the, this is like, she wasn't just an editor, she was the publisher, and she said to me, her new writer, none of us know how books get Mojo, and that's when I knew what was going to happen. Um, <laughs> Nevertheless, there are lots of writers who don't care about critical attention, just want a good story, and end up reading really fine books. Ann Tyler, I think, is a prime example, with consistent bestsellers, but also graduate papers written about her books. Consider a writer like Jane Smiley, who keeps turning them out, and whose Thousand Acres was hugely popular, but anyone would say she's a fine writer. Cormac McCarthy, who turned out books that 70 people read for years and years, and then wrote All the Pretty Horses, uh, which was a huge hit. Or Ian McEwan, another really fine writer of many books. Um, and Atonement became a movie, and all of a sudden, his other books, which had also sold, sold more. It's, it's as if there's a star in the heaven, and it passes over, and nobody knows who's going to be right under it. That said, I think there are writers who don't want to be in the middle. They don't really want to be both literary and popular and worry about that. They have a place on, in, in the literary world and a niche, and they sell book after book after book without having to worry about any of these things. Um, that's when we call a book popular or a writer popular. Stephen King isn't worrying about where he is on a continuum. The, you know, the, the big mystery writers and thriller writers, um, they, they, they're not present at this talk. Um, but I think of fine literary writers who would like to enlarge their audience and who do enlarge their audience, and it's a big day when they do. Consider, for example, the British writer Kate Atkinson, who melded mainstream sales and widespread critical praise with her novels Life After Life and A God in Ruins. How many have read any, any of those? I would have thought more. Um, she was already well-known and respected. Her most popular books were mysteries. And then she wrote two novels in which the whole idea of a person having only one life got thrown out the window in favor of diced chronology, impossible history, and a whole new way of conceiving of a person's time and fate. And all of a sudden, she's a literary star on several continents and a bestseller on several continents. She came up with something new, and she wrote it with great craftsmanship. And then think of Justin Cronin, who is a graduate of the program here. He came out of the gate with nice, some nice literary work. And then he wrote a spectacularly successful vampire trilogy. Um, so lots of writers have more than one thing in them. And um, who's to say what the next one is going to be? So I'm going to chance um, a description of two sorts of novels and remind you that a story that's good is good because it's good. What else can I say? And I say again that that's what you want, to be as good as you can be at what you do, which almost surely means drawing on both sides of the continuum. I'll go out on a limb here and say that 
I think that literary fiction writers have a lot to learn look, looking towards the other end. A lot to learn about how to reach an audience. And that's something that I've been trying to learn for decades. Um, but if you, the people, if you have a resonant theme and a complex protagonist and a compelling voice, you have a great book. And sometimes that occurs in a book that maybe I don't like, but lots of other people do. Or it occurs in a book that's a little too dense for readers. But there is, I think there is a broad range of kinds of writing that can have resonant themes, complex protagonists, and a powerful voice. Think about the novels you love. I'll bet you could describe them with phrases from both categories. So I want you just to take a second and think of a novel that you love. Um, and try to th and think of a contemporary one, like not, not The Great Gatsby or Madame Bovary or whatever, but something in the last 10 years. And just keep it in mind for a little while. Everybody got one? All right, so first I'll talk about popular novels. Popular novels are usually written with a comfortable, unobtrusive voice. They are well plotted, and they present a question that begs to be answered. Well, they may be way down on the, on the continuum of popularity, but who on the end of literary writing doesn't want a well plotted story with a question that begs to be answered. The settings can be familiar, cozy, domestic, much of women's fiction, or they can be exotic. The reader easily identifies with the main character. There's clear conflict, rising action. There are surprises, but there is also a sense of inexorability. And I think that's a big part of Diane Reverend's mojo, that a book that when you get to the end of it, whether it's a surprise or not, you know that that is the only way the book could have ended. It leaves you with a huge sense of satisfaction, and that's when you go tell your friends that you read a good book. The reader is engaged in a popular book, reading fast but never confused. If there's a mystery, it's because it's a mystery book. The resolution is satisfying, but at the same time, it's just what ought to happen. There are usually external forces at work. It's not all about what's inside the character. There are things going on in the world that impact the story. And sometimes that means a powerful villain. But the most interesting complications in popular fiction, or any fiction, arise because of the choices that the protagonist makes, usually in response, in this case, to heightened danger or the potential for failure. And these things push the plot along. Memory and psychology often explain or drive character problems. But I would amend that really to say memory and popular psychology, the, the things that are sort of current in the zeitgeist that we're talking about tend to show up in popular novels, just as current issues tend to show up in popular novels. Um, sometimes they're simplistic. The woman abused as a child despises men until she meets Mr. Wright. 
the impoverished child grows up to be CEO of a multinational corporation. I read that book. And there is usually a big scene of revelation. Structure is clear. Nobody's confused. Sometimes it's schematic. The reader can follow the story complications, but always has questions about what is coming next. There is a sympathetic protagonist, but there are often alternating multiple points of view. Some of these novels have almost no interiority. I think of um, especially thrillers, where it's really about what happens, and lots of mysteries. But with mysteries, I would add that the mystery writers who, who have pushed beyond the genre do it, I think, by developing deep character. So like um, in the United States, we have Michael Connolly, whose, whose um, Detective Bosch books have a whole arc of the wound of his, his murdered mother and his desire to know what happened to her. Plus, he's driven by um, his contempt for corruption and by what is sort of his byword, everyone deserves for the murderer to be found. Every victim is the same. So a prostitute gets the same kind of, of um, investigation from him that the CEO does. Um, so as I said, some novels have almost no interiority, and that can be wonderful. Think of Elmore Leonard with his diction, his fast uh, dialogue. Others are absolutely drenched in interiority. And here I think of Jody. Picolt, is that how you say her name? Um, and they, these kinds of writers appeal to different, different, um, different swaths of the readership. Um, the voice of a popular novel may be so close and intimate that it's like your best friend telling you a story, or it may be utterly dispassionate and focused on action. Or the voice may be highly individual and reflect the diction of the writer. In popular fiction, scenes take up most of the book. Read several books by a popular author, and you can probably write a blueprint for writing a novel like that person, except that you won't have the idea that that person had. And it takes talent to come up with the idea for a novel. So when does this kind of writing go too far? In my estimation, these are the problems. Characters are flat. Um, they seem like they were taken out of a drawer. They might have been lifted from somebody else's story or from an earlier book by the same author. When the explanations for character behavior are obvious or corny or just not there. When it's all excitement and gore and sex and burning swords and I don't really care about any of those people and when pop psychology is milked for explanation. And then last, I would say, the thing wrong with popular fiction is when I've already seen it, thank you. When the language is trite, dull, or worst of all, full of errors in syntax and diction and vocabulary. To be fair, I see two exceptions to my reservations about popular writing and how Sometimes it just skids off. One is that although genres appear to have rules, the rules can be broken. And this is much more true now than it used to be. Um, I used to have 
friends way back in Ashland, Oregon, three women who were pals and sort of made themselves into a little writing club. They were all English teachers, but on the side they wrote bodice rippers. And they did, they did really well, and all their books had, you know, Italian men on the cover. Um, and then one day, it just disappeared. Those books don't exist anymore. Um, another exception is when someone talented and ambitious cracks the genre with a fresh interpretation. And I would uh, cite Jennifer Weiner here, who I think um, is much admired, and many people are trying to write like her. It not only means success for the writer, it means that a whole new genre spreads like wildfire. Likewise, when a writer writes an entirely an, an entertaining novel that is completely outside his expected territory, if you will, it becomes a fodder for publicity. So um, an entertaining story, what you would call a beach read, for example, is the novel Rich and Pretty, about childhood female best friends grown up in New York City, but it's written by Ruman Alam, a first-generation American son of South Asian parents. So every time I read anything, any kind of review or blurb or anything about that book, that was what they told me, as if I should read it because a str strange person wrote it. But at, for publicity, um, you take what you can get. And that one seems to work. Literary novels. I will say that I think there is such a thing and that they spring from artistic impulse. Story is driven more by character than by plot. Well, there needs to be a plot. There is a heightened attention to language, and there is often an innovative structure. There is a powerful, powerful theme, sometimes disturbing, about things that mean something not only to the characters, but to you and to the culture. There is a sense of largeness. The story has what has been called the gift of second meaning. Um, not very many popular books get read twice, but I think a lot of literary novels do. They're the kinds of books that you come back four or five, six years later and say, I, I, I'm going to read that again. You know or even later. And if it gets very much later, you don't even remember if you liked it, but there it is. Um, you find yourself rereading passages because you think there's more to understand if you take the time to think about it. You're willing to read the book because you want to think about what it says. And you sometimes read a page just because it is so darn beautiful. And I hope you all have that experience in your reading. You lend it to a friend, but you want it back. That's a literary novel. Think layers. The characters are complex. The voice is unique. Memory and psychology provide motifs, but they are subtle. There is a powerful premise. The story says something about how the world works and maybe about how it ought to work. There is a strong sense of a created world of the story. Not that it isn't plausible, but that it is somehow more elegant than real life. It manages all at once to seem both compressed and capacious. There is a kind of authorial presence casting philosophical light on the story and on life, and I think you don't get that in popular fiction. Sentence structure is varied, 
playful, sophisticated, or maybe it is crisp and clear and spare. There is more contemplation, more musing than in a mainstream novel, and there is less snap. So think about what kind of book you want to write and set your bar high. Draw from these descriptions of the characteristics you want to strive for, and I mean that literally, make a list. Don't expect to get everything right on your first pass. You can learn to write better, and that's why you're here. It's why you'll come back. Um, I suggest as a starter list, and this is the first, this is number one on my list, clear, fluent, modestly adorned diction. In other words, you write with economy, clarity, close attention. You're not trying to be fancy, and you read your work aloud. You want it to be clear. Um, you also want to be error-free. I mean, I just I can't imagine that someone goes to the trouble of writing a novel and doesn't catch the mistakes in it. But um, I, see that, I see that now, I mean, not only in some of the self-published fiction, I see it coming from the major houses. And I think the, the reason is that copy editors are no longer on staff. They're paid by the job. So the faster you get a job done, the faster you get on to the next one. But all I know is the day that I got, read a novel from Knopf, and it had a lie-lay mistake, was the day I threw the book across the room. Um, you don't want to be a smarty pants. You want to you have an idea that excites you. You want a well-constructed storyline that comes together at the end, but not too early and not with tricks. You want someone to love. A book has to have someone to love. It has to have someone to be afraid of. It has to have something to learn. It has to have the warmth of a storyteller's voice. I'll say that again. A well-constructed storyline, someone to love, something to be afraid of, something to learn, and the warmth of a storyteller's voice. Build on your strengths and strengthen your weaknesses. I, if I could suggest just one thing to apprentice writers, it would be to get a book on sentence craft and make it a regular part of your discipline to simply work on improving your sentences. Um, there's line by line, I can't think of the name of the author, but that's a, it's a terrific book. They're, they are out there, you can, you can find them. Find models and practice writing like them. Write with restraint, stay out of your way, don't try to be fancy, and try this. Pick a novel you admire and describe what you like. Is it reasonable to think that you could write a book with similar qualities? So think of the book that you identified. Just call out. Can you think of one quality of that book that really stands out for you? Anybody? Insights, okay. Anybody love the voice? The powerful theme, um, ah, great, 
the image patterns, um, characters that you identify with. Okay. Um, sense of surprise. Um, anything else? Think about it. When you read a book, if you really love a book, spend some time thinking about what made that book such a good experience for me. And is that something that I can emulate? And if so, I have to figure out how to do it. Um, chances are that you have eclectic taste and that you read things that can serve you and you read other things that you would not try to write like. I mean, I'm never going to be a Russian novelist, but I love Russian novels. Dig deeper into your own response and try to identify elements rather than the idea of the whole book. So for example, if you are awed by the author's language and wit, and you know you could never write like that, if you think more, you may find that it's simply the story itself that is essential to the book, and that what you want to do is find a story that's powerful. So you aren't Flaubert. That doesn't mean you can't tell a story about a sad, foolish, passionate, deluded woman who somehow touches all of us with her impossible dreams. You aren't Cormac McCarthy, but maybe you know that boys become men when they survive harsh adventures, and you know an adventure that would make a heck of a story. That's it, how you emulate Cormac McCarthy, not by having no interiority or punctuation. <laughs> maybe you are in love with the quotidian. You think everyday life is full of muted drama, and that's what captures you emotionally, but you're so afraid that everyone else would think it is boring. Well, think about that. What about Ann Tyler, Jane Hamilton, Meg Wallitzer, Kent Harreff, Tony Early, Richard Russo? If that's what you admire, go back to those books and say, yes, these are ordinary people. They live in ordinary places. They have the kinds of problems that lots of people have. Why does this book reach people so much. I think you'll probably find that it's not plot, it's depth of character. It's that, and, it's, and also in a lot of cases, it is that sense of absolute clarity that it's, you're being spoken to so directly about what life is. Um, maybe you love the way an author integrates history into a story or sets the story in a sprawling family. You could do those things. You have your subject, you have your sensibility, but you can do the things that you admire, making them your own. If plotting is hard for you, and it's hard for almost everyone, start with a short novel with straightforward chronology and take the thing apart. And my advice there is to go to middle, fi middle age fiction. You know, go to a librarian or the bookstore and say, I want to, I want three middle-aged, middle-aged, I guess that's, what are, middle grade, middle grade you know, novels that kids that are really good solid readers would read and take them home and, and pull them apart. I think you'll find that they have all those qualities I talked about. Um, clarity, a, a sense of movement through the story, 
um, a character you really care about, um, and, and an inevitability about the way it ends. Um, think like an architect. Study archetypal plots. Look at the plots of classic novels. Try inventing your own stories or forms in summary. You know, if you, if you lo are looking at archetypal um, stories, I'm thinking of like Greek myths and so forth, read one and then say, well, what would that be like in present time? And try to write a summary. Anything that you can do to, it, it's like ingesting. You, you want to eat those models. You want them to come in and become part of you so that they're available to you when you're trying to create new things. Look at your summaries and find a way to upend the archetype. Look around you and ask the two most basic questions. What if and what else? That's how you push your story. The best stories aren't labored. They spring from basic human needs and fears made new by imagination. If your stories are thin, and so many, many apprentice stories, that's one of the main problems. One thing happens. Well, what can you do about that? One thing you can do is be more of the world. If you read a lot of fiction, and you're trying to write fiction, maybe you should read some science, geography, politics, poetry, history. I ignore current events in this list as a matter of taste, because I like to have things settle a bit. The annual best of collections are a great place to start. The topics are full of stories. Some novelists gain fame by writing about characters in interesting fields like art, Susan Reelan, for example, or science, Andrea Barrett. Readers love to learn things from the books they read, whether it's the history of the Opium Wars, Amitav Ghosh's Ibis tr trilogy, How to Cook with Truffles, Martin Walker's novels of the Jardin, or how crimes are investigated. We love crime novels. We're following a procedure. We're inside the head of someone figuring out a puzzle. Well, think of a puzzle. Doesn't have to be a crime. Just think puzzle when you're creating a novel. Read translated work. It will expand your view of how stories are told and what matters. You could start with Nobel winners, like Patrick Modiano, Moyan, Nagu Mafuz, Haldor Laxness. Don't you love the rolls on your tongues? But really, you get a different feeling for what stories can be. Travel not just afar, but in your own home area with curiosity. Take a deep breath. This is a really hard thing for me to say. Join a group, any group. Join a knitting group. Join a book club. Do something at your church, but get around other human beings and, and you will open your possibilities for story and character. Learn a new skill. It's all, I, when I wrote A Chance to See Egypt, uh, believe it or not, I trapped birds and learned to cook them because that was important to my story. I mean, I had someone helping me. Ideas skitter, keep a journal. Write them down, they accrue and they cohere. I heard, honest to God, I heard Richard Ford say, 
when talking about writing a novel, he said, oh, you know, I just keep shoeboxes and I put ideas in them. I tear things out of the paper. I scribble notes. And when those shoeboxes get overflowing, I figure I've got enough for the thought of a novel. And I think if you read his last four novels, you'll see just what he's talking about. Because he's got a story, but he loves to be always commenting on things. And I don't know if he was, if that was true. I don't know why he would say it if it wasn't. But I could see the sense of it, that you know, you're writing a novel, and you've got the story, and you've got the plot. But what about all the rest of the things that have to go in the story? Draw, nothing is stranger than real life. So start paying attention to it. Um, I once led a weekly workshop in which writers told stories. We, um, we took different genres, myths, fairy tales, folk tales, etc., and made up our own. It was great fun, and I think it's a good exercise. Learn to think of stories as multidimensional. You learn about something someone did, something that happened to a family, and you ask yourself, who else had a story in that event? What was going on around the event? What stories intersect? You might find a fresh subject for a novel that way. Consider Paula McLean's The Paris Wife, about Hemingway's first wife. Don't get on bandwagons. You can learn a lot by studying admirable novels, structure, developing characters, integrating history, and so on. But trying to write a story, like a story that made somebody famous, is a prescription for frustration. Fiction in young adult literature seems to follow trends for a while, but I have two concerns. One, who came up with the first one? And two, have we already had the last one in terms of copying it? Um, you want to be the first one to come up with the idea, and nobody wants to be the one that wore out the genre. If you can find a fresh interpretation for an old genre, that's something else again. Gone Girl made gothic thriller, gothic thriller new again and has been madly recycled. We are still having copies of it. Go inside yourself because that is the real origin of the story. Every character you write has something of you in him. Don't stay on the surface of yourself. Learn about what fascinates you. Find the story in you and you will find subjects for novels. Fear anger, shame, joy, ambition, pride, envy, loss, grief, what you need and you don't have, what you had and you lost, where you were and you can't go back. Those things, there are stories there. Or go the other way around and look outside you and see the story going on. Flaubert set himself the challenge of writing a novel about an unsympathetic protagonist who was part of a class of people that he basically despised. He made her whiny, self-centered, grasping, with just about no redeeming quality, and it was Madame Bovary. Because he was determined that he would find her story and make it great. And I know this because I read a big book of his letters, and they're just shocking. 
he writes letters primarily to his woman friend saying things like, if I don't get these idiots out of this dinner, I've got them in tonight, I'm going to tear the whole thing up, sick of listening to them talk, and so forth and so on. Would you have thought that? Um, he wanted, he, it, it was a challenge to him, he wanted the reader to understand her so completely that it would be impossible not to care for her. And he achieved it. Some writers build their career by making every novel different, others by making their novels familiar. The simple truth is, you have to find what your passion is, where it takes you. You have to find something that you care about so deeply, you cannot help but find the right story and the right way to tell it. And where you are on the continuum doesn't matter at all. Read what you love and write from passion. Thank you. Thank you.